0: As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio.
1: It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Laurie Calvasina joins us now, head of U.S. equity strategy at RBC Capital Markets. Laurie, let's just start with the jobs report on Friday. It follows through into Monday, equities lower. What did that change for you, if anything at all?
3: So, look, I think it's one data point. You know, I think there was a view that emerged over the weekend in Friday trading um, that the Fed may have to stay higher for longer. We may not get the pause. We may not get the cuts. I'm still in the camp that thinks we are closer to the end of this hiking cycle and we're going to get the pause. And for me, it really underscores the idea that this economy is very resilient. Um, I think there could have been some labor hoarding. Um, You know, I think that there are things that could explain that hot number, but I think we just see this time and time again, just evidence that the labor market is tight and that we are seeing, yeah. you know, if you look at some other reports, we're seeing some indications that wage growth is slowing. I think that's probably enough to help inflation come down. So I'm not overreacting to Friday's report. For me, the broader thesis is still intact for now.
2: Lori, what I find fascinating, I thought of you this weekend, Bloomberg reporting mm-hmm. that Danaher is looking at a service company in the medical field. It's a mid-cap, smaller cap kind of thing. Not a zombie roll-up, but are we just going to see a roll-up in year small mid-cap space? Because money finally costs something?
3: I think it's a, a potential catalyst for markets going forward in the small mid cap space in particular. So one of the things we know about small cap companies is the hot quality is higher than it used to be. Um, what we also know is that the price we're going to pay for you know either skirting the recession or a short shallow recession or a growth scare or whatever we end up calling this is probably going to be that economic growth is subpar for a little bit in percentage terms. And I think that incents companies who have a lot of cash still sitting on their balance sheets who have very good you know structure in terms of their debt profiles, I think this is going to incent them to go out and buy some growth. And when you're looking at historically cheap valuations in small relative to large, it's something that simply makes sense. So I think it's, you know, it's something that we have to watch going forward. And I think it argues against a deeply bearish narrative in
1: markets. At the same time, if you talk about Torsten Slock's narrative about no landing, is that positive for equity valuations if that means higher rates for longer and companies having to justify their capital structures in a much higher rate regime?
3: I think it's... It depends on exactly what you mean by higher rates. Now, if we're going back to something that we saw in the 70s, of course, that's going to slaughter PE multiples. Um, We actually have a model where we bake in inflation, uh, Fed funds, and also the 10-year yield. And we published an update on that this morning. We do have a couple cuts baked in uh, for the Fed at year end, and it gets us to a 22 times multiple. We also have, you know, the 10-year treasury at around 3.4% and inflation moderating to around 3%. But let's say I just go in, Lisa, and flex those interest rate assumptions and kind of take the Fed number up and just leave it there. So don't make any cuts and keep that higher for longer. I'm still looking at a 20 plus PE multiple on a trailing basis on this year's earnings. So it hurts a little bit, but it doesn't hurt as much as people think if you go in and do the math.
0: Laurie, I just (coughs) want to finish on the rest of the world. China has gone from uninvestable to unavoidable, and then seemingly in the last 48 hours has swung back to something in between. Laurie, how much interest is there from your clients to invest abroad this year?
3: So it's been huge John and we've talked about this in the past but I think investors came into 2023 just wanting to do something new and one of the new things that people wanted to do was play the China reopening thesis and I think raising the geopolitical angst and talking about worsening relations between China and the US I think it complicates the ability to play that trade. So as we sit here and think about things that could push markets down in the short term or cause you know things to just lose a little bit of momentum to me frankly that's you know a more legitimate downside catalyst than say oh earnings need to come down a little bit more. I think the market understands the latter. I think the, the the China issue is it's challenging something that had gotten people very excited coming into this year.
0: Laurie, wonderful as always. It's good to catch up and kick off the trade and w- with you, Laurie Cavassina there of RBC Capital Markets.
2: Right now, Michael Scholl joins us, Chief Executive Officer, Market Field Asset Management, with a very very uh, nuanced note there. How did your view change, the market field view, after 517,000 plus 54,000 revisions? How did the labor economy of the United States adjust your view?
4: I mean, I thought it was strong. and Friday's numbers told you it was strong. I do think it's one of those reports that looks like a bit of a statistical aberration. It's sort of strong across the board. It's a weird time of year, and you had all of the 2022 adjustments thrown into that. <clears throat> So, you know, I, I think probably we're still creating about 200,000 jobs a month. Yeah. All of the labor metrics look okay. And in Friday's number, particularly in the household survey, you know, you discovered a bunch of the missing jobs that Jay Powell had been talking about, which uh, it's, it's not shocking. I mean, the, the, the labor mar- data is strong.
2: The market field view is a, is a more long-term view. We're now back to where money costs something. Yes. How much? T- speak to people that have never enjoyed what Michael or Ehrenstein have enjoyed, or speak to how we're back to now where money costs something. How does my life change?
4: Well, I mean, the question is, uh, yeah, are you operating in a kind of business that can generate enough cash flow that money at five percent is is unimportant? I think for a lot of the economy you know, it's it's really still okay. I, I don't think the sort of, what we would call the sort of old economy has really been devastated by interest rates. Um, I think the problem is much more in people who have been very, very creative with financial engineering attached to a business. And and, and there, you know, which is a lot of a sort of VC portion of the economy, there I think 5% is gonna matter. I, I think we're gonna be at or around 5%, for a while uh frankly we're going to be at around five percent until things start to fall apart
0: this talk of course of going abroad only a year or so ago china was totally uninvestable Mm -hmm. we start 2023 and i'm told repeatedly it's unavoidable the events of friday and over the weekend does it change how we want to be invested in the china story Uh, look i think
4: there's two big issues one is that the chinese have switched from you know really a, a very bad COVID policy to a more manageable COVID policy. And monetarily, they've gone from tight to loose. So that's really, really positive. The thing that hasn't changed, and it's been true really since 2018, is the sort of geopolitic, geopolitical aggravation of investing in China. You know, <laughs> it's not a lot of fun. Um, I mean, we, we found that out in Russia last year, where where everything we had there, which wasn't much, uh, you know, was wiped over a weekend. Uh, I don't think China itself is that attractive for those reasons, but that whole region is now much, much more attractive. I think some of the markets surrounding China are investable. Um, I think the Japanese as a as a byproduct of yield curve control, have also sort of involuntary switched to a very loose uh, you know to a very loose monetary monetary policy. So I think Asia and the portions of the US market that feed into that, you know, are suddenly doing quite a lot better. Does this extend to Europe? Yeah, to London it, it either. Does. The
0: miners listed on the FTSE. Does it, it extend
4: to them? You know, the FTSE made an all-time high on Friday. The record. And, no one's and, talking and about. It. No one talks I missed about that it. completely. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Made, made an all-time high. Um, and it's been struggling, it you know, struggling with this level for, you know, since 99, 2000. So it does for that portion of the London market. I think it does for the German economy, which is still tied, you know, which is still tied into that. So I think for, you know, a portion of global economically sensitive equities, the news has got materially better in the last four months.
1: How do you decipher the signal from the noise at a time of such noise, particularly short covering and some of the volatility that we saw last week?
4: Oh, I, I think it's really hard. I, I, you know, my, my phone didn't stop ringing like Thursday and Friday last week from people trying to work out what, what 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 on earth is is really going on. Look, some of the technicians I respect think they've seen enough to call this a new bull market. I, I don't. Um, uh, you know, I, I think that the change in monetary policy last year still matters. Um, I, you know, I think that that we might be in this really weird situation that an index like the S and P equal weight might have finished its bear market last year. But the index we actually follow, which is the headline index, which is dominated by large cap tech, I, I think is still is still in a bear market.
1: I want to build on that and just give this color that Thursday's short covering was the largest since November 15th, according to Goldman's trading desk, to give you a sense mm-hmm. of just how violent it really was in a historical perspective. Big tech, you don't think it can recover from here, even with all of the job cuts? Is that what you're saying?
4: Yeah, I don't think the NASDAQ 100 is going to make a new high in in 2023. I'd I'd be shocked if it did. Why? Because I think it was grotesquely overvalued when it did make its all-time high. Um, And I think these sort of 10-year bull markets, when they end, take a long time to give you a new high. It doesn't happen in 10 months.
2: You studied commodity cycles. You mentioned some optimism, Pacific Rim ex-China. This is how I'd put it. Is that enough to get oil above $100 Brent? Is that something that's more probable than many would think?
4: Yeah, I mean I think it's got a much better chance of being 160, you know, at $80 today.
2: I mean, I'm, I'm deciding, do I need two barrels in my living room like Lisa had? No, I don't
4: like, think it's crazy. But I think we, <clears throat> you have to realize that the weakness in crude oil prices since last summer was caused partly by what was going on in China, which mm-hmm. we assume is getting better. But it was also caused by massive releases from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. And I think one right. thing's
0: for sure in 2023 is we're not going to see that happen again. They can't repeat the act. That's for sure. No, they can't. I mean, Michael Shaw of Market-Filled Asset Management. How can you repeat the act on? They're looking to rebuild the thing. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs, to ways to cover rising healthcare costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning, so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio.
5: The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum, powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry, and Media City Qatar, and premier sponsor QNB.
2: Right now, this is a joy, and Lisa's going to launch on to other broader U.S. political affairs. But with Julie Norman, who is co-director of the University College of London Center on U.S. Politics, I have to go to her younger academic years of traipsing around the Levant. You have not been, Julie, in the earthquake region directly above Damascus, directly above Lebanon, in that northeast corner of the Mediterranean, but you have been northeast of there as well. Well, it's pretty remote, isn't it?
5: So it's not it's not a super um, populated area, Tom, but it's not, I wouldn't describe it as remote either. I mean, these are still populated areas, and obviously we've seen that from, uh, from the death toll that is just climbing as, as we speak, at least 1,300 people killed. So um, I would say it's uh, Gaziantep, for example, the closest city to where the epicenter mm-hmm. was, is um, one of the centers where many Syrian refugees were fleeing for a number of years during the core years of the Syrian crisis. So these are areas where... Many people have already faced extreme hardship in life, forced displacement, have been gathering and are now facing this uh, devastating crisis as well.
2: Aleppo directly south, and we've all seen the horror of the bomb, the leveling of Aleppo is how I would put it. How does the tension, the terrorism that you follow of the war there of Syria and various parties, how does that uh, obstruct earthquake relief efforts?
5: Well, Tom. Any time that you have conflict ongoing, when you have a unstable uh, government and governing system, and a place like Aleppo where there has been holdout from rebels, you know, resistance to the state taking back over for obvious reasons, uh, it's it's very difficult to coordinate uh, any kind of relief. It's one reason that we've seen the group called the White Helmets, which again got a lot of um, press during uh, during the Syrian conflict, have been some of the responders at this. You know, they're really the first to the scene. But in terms of reconstruction, in terms of rebuilding after this. It's going to be tough in places like that, that are beset with many other challenges, even when there aren't natural disasters.
1: We'll keep uh, giving updates throughout the morning uh, as we get more on this developing situation, a tragedy where hundreds of people are dying. Julie, there is a question uh, in the morning, in the sort of mood about what the relationship between U.S. and China really is on the heels of that balloon that got shot down, the surveillance balloon, maybe the weather balloon. That's what China is claiming. What did you make of the Chinese response to the U.S. shooting down the balloon.
5: Yeah, so Lisa, it's interesting. I mean, I don't think it was a a shock to anyone following US-China that that there's espionage going back and forth on both ways. So the fact that there are these kinds of surveillance tools themselves was not the main uh, story as much as it was just the brazeness of having it so visible. And I think it's still unclear with how intentional that was to have it be that visible. Was it intentional across the Chinese government? Was it one part of the Chinese government? Or was this just a complete um, mess up on somebody's part? I do think it was interesting that China's response initially did seem to be a sort of crisis damage control. It wasn't just sitting back with the popcorn and watching to see how the U.S. responded to this. It really did seem alarm that this was happening and playing out as it was. Obviously, since then, we've seen some of the usual rhetoric of, The U.S. is blowing this out of proportion. Um, You know, this was, uh, you know, uh, unnecessary to shoot down the balloon, these kinds of things. But I think the initial reaction said it all, that, that something did not go right here. And it put China on the back foot and on the defensive, I think, more than the U.S. We've
1: been talking this morning, Julia, about what the mood among the populations of the U.S. and China have in terms of an effect on the response from both President Biden and Xi Jinping in China. How much are people looking for Xi Jinping
5: to take a hard stance against the U.S.? i well, I think there's obviously that that look, and there always has been. But at the same time, you know, China is coming out of a, uh, a really unsteady period, trying to come back after COVID, restabilize the economy. And part of that means coordinating in some kind of way with the US. So I think there were at least some in China who were seeing this, you know, the the Blinken visit that got canceled, this kind of open communication as, okay, let's at least stabilize things, get things back to some kind of normal. And instead, when you see a crisis like like this send things into kind of uh unpredictable uh directions that's not something that those who are just wanting to get back to stability want to see so obviously there's some support for that tough talk but at the
0: same time a sense of we don't want things going off the rails more than necessary either julie the team here at bloomberg did a great write-up over the weekend of the f-22 this was Damon Shepard and tony capacho the f-22 raptor fighter they indicated this was the first air-to-air kill by that jet. Judy, it made me wonder, what do you think the Chinese learned from how the US responded to this event?
5: Yeah. So obviously there was going to be watching of that. But I do think it's important that the U.S. is also learning from the technology that they will get from this as well. And that was part of the administration's calculation. You know, we've known from before that China has been able to um, to learn from our aircraft. Um, that was one of the uh, reverse technologies that was was seen as a real win for China. And I think the U.S. is trying to see if they can do the same thing with unpacking some of these intelligence um apparatuses that they do now have hands on uh but but you're right both sides are always i think watching the other to see what are they using how are they using it and what can we learn from it to adapt on our own systems
0: hey julie great as always thanks for being with us just perfect timing julie norman there of ucl sarah hewan is one of the
2: most interesting people in the economics racket. She's out of Joan Robinson's College, at Cambridge, which is truly one of the toughest admits in the world. She's with Standard Charter, Head of Europe and America's Research. Sarah, what was your first completely overwhelming day like at the University of Cambridge? The heritage of that program is stunning. What was it like, your first day in the classroom? <laughs>
6: It was uh, fantastic, but uh, I was amazed at how many men were in the lecture hall, to be honest. Um, When I'd been at school, it had been equal women-men, and uh, economics was still very much a a male type of subject at that time. Things have changed, of course.
2: Things have changed a lot, and you've been a real real leader on that with your coverage here of Europe and now of, of essentially the Western Hemisphere of Standard Charter. What is your theme, taking Standard Charter's expertise in the Pacific, of a china recovery and how will that affect the sarah hewen world
6: well i think it's i think it's pretty hopeful really we're looking for growth of 5.8% this year in China, and that's above consensus. But we're pretty confident that we're going to see a real surge in consumer spending. And if we look back at what happened in the US and what happened in Europe in the immediate aftermath of the first pandemic wave, helped, of course, by a lot of government spending, particularly in the US, there was a huge surge, 25% real terms increase in consumer spending uh, from trough to peak in the first 12 months after that first pandemic wave in the US around 15% in Europe. And I think we're going to see similarly large increases in spending that's going to drive the Chinese economy forward. Um, In terms of what it means for our part of the world, it's great for exporters. It's been a sort of difficult year trade wise. And uh, we think that there's a lot of opportunities in China this year. Um, Question is what happens to inflation? Uh, There are concerns that we could see commodity prices picking up again. our our own view is that the sort of growth we're going to see in China is not necessarily going to be driving commodity prices substantially higher. Um, It's not going to be construction-led, it's not going to be investment-led, very much a consumer-led and probably consumer services-led boom.
1: Meanwhile, people are also looking at resilient labor markets, perhaps helped out by uh, some of the demand from China, but very much domestically driven, both in Europe as well as in the U.S. How much dissonance is there between the strong labor markets that we see and this disinflationary push that a lot of people are feeling perhaps has a linear nature?
6: I think... There's a lot of dissonance because it's true that if we look at the U.S., if we look at the euro area, if we look at UK, we have strong labour markets everywhere. And um, certainly here in Europe, there are real concerns about what that means for wages. We're seeing wages rising pretty rapidly. In the UK, we have strike action, which is likely to uh, further um, advance that. And in the euro area, no particular war signs yet of of wages becoming uh, out of control, but some concern that with the unemployment rate as low as it is, the lowest on record, that it's only a matter of time before you see wages catching up. Um, So that does really question what happens to inflation, particularly the services part of inflation. We know that that's a concern for the fed and that uh, chair powell has talked about the uh, imbalances in the labor market being potentially a driver of services inflation x ex, um, x ex housing so this there is this dissonance between what is undoubtedly a decline in headline inflation um, and certainly a decline in core inflation in the u.s less so in in Europe uh, and what we see, this real strength that we're seeing on the uh, employment side.
1: What was the big takeaway for you uh, from what we saw on Friday from the labor market report in the U.S. that a lot of people thought was something of a head scratcher just simply because of its strength?
6: (laughs) To be fair there was little to suggest that the labour market is weak in those data. I mean we had had some signs earlier in the week layoffs were rising pretty rapidly Um, and um, we know that a lot of the jobs that have been created are part-time. That said the work week was up, um, the employment was strong, whichever measure. And even if you account for uh, seasonal adjustments and the sort of population increase, it's difficult to poke a hole in that data.
2: Well, and this was sort of the zeitgeist over the weekend, Sarah. So let's cut to the chase and be polite. How did so many people get this wrong? Have you thought about it over the weekend? I mean, it was a shock, wasn't it?
6: It was. And I think that we have had some signs of the economy weakening. So clearly, second half of last year, GDP growth was strong. But if you look at the real spending data, then they were weak for October, November, December. Uh, The surveys uh, showing activity pretty sluggish and until we had that ISM services survey that looked to be the case across the board. So I think it was a double whammy that we had from the payrolls report on Friday and the ISM services completely reversing out that uh, pretty weak number that we'd had previously. Um, So a lot of head scratching over where is the economy going?
1: Sarah, do you agree with Torsten Slock uh, over at Apollo that we could get a no landing given how strong the data has been?
6: I I question the strength of the data, to be honest. I think we need to see the next couple of months without wanting to sound too data dependent. There is a lot of, um, you know, there are a lot of questions over exactly what's happening to the Mm -hmm. labour market. Uh, Uncertainty that this degree of strength can persist. And we know, of course, that there can be huge revisions one month to the next in the data. Mm -hmm. So I'd be tempted to sit back. Let's see what happens over the next month or so before or, uh deciding that there's a no-landing in sight.
2: Sarah, thank you so much. Sarah Hugh and their Standard Chartered Bank. Subscribe to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live every weekday starting at 7 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, tune in, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can watch us live on Bloomberg Television and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Keen and this is Bloomberg.